theater does really think of itself as this being this this liberal bastion of diversity and inclusion. And I think because of the nature of what we do, sometimes we can be incredibly myopic and not necessarily recognize the extent to which racism has infiltrated all aspects of our theater ecosystem. Hi, I'm Eric Ostro, host of Live at the Lortel. For season two, while theaters are still closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are turning our focus to discuss the reckoning the theater community is facing for its history of systemic racism. We also wanted to give theater artists a platform to share their thoughts on the political and social changes in our country and how they envision the future of the American theater. I will be sharing my hosting duties with members of the BIPOC community to provide our audience with different perspectives and new ideas. It is our sincere hope these conversations will help us all learn from one another and begin the healing process. Welcome to Live at the Lortel. I'm very excited for tonight's guest, but I first want to bring on my dearest friend and co-host for the evening, Joy DeMichelle. Joy, come on. Hello, Eric. How are you? Beautiful in yellow. Thank you. Thank you very much. You look great. So our guest, you are an enormous fan of, as am I, but I'm going to hand this over to you this evening. I know you want to do the intro, so please be my guest. Let's get her on and do your intro, please. Absolutely. There she is. Here we go, everybody. So Lynn Nottage was born in Brooklyn, New York. She is a graduate of Brown University and the second African-American woman to graduate from Yale School of Drama for playwriting. After school, Lynn Nottage started working at Amnesty International. It was then that she wrote her first play, Poof, magical realism play that focuses on domestic abuse. Lynn Nottage is also the co-founder of Market Road Films and is an associate professor in the theater department at Columbia University. As a playwright and screenwriter and the first woman in the history to win two Pulitzer Prizes for drama, the first in 2009 for Ruined, and the second in 2017 for Sweat. Nottage was included in Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in 2019. She writes contrasting, provocative, empathetic, socially conscious plays. Her plays have been produced widely throughout the world. The list includes Mud Riverstone, Crumbs from the Table of Joy, Fabulation, Intimate Apparel, which won many, 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 many awards, Poof, Ruined, and which also won her the Tony and the Pulitzer Prize. So now she has worked on Floyd's that opened at the Guthrie Theater. I'm curious to know, did that get a run or was it stopped and halted by the pandemic? Uh, No, we actually had a really lovely run at the Guthrie because it was two summers ago. And so the pandemic wasn't even a consideration. You know, ironically, the play is called Floyd's and it was in Minneapolis. And so it was a very different world in very different time when that play premiered. Fantastic. So the play Sweat that you did is very touching to me. I had the um, opportunity to be brought to life, I would say, by the show because I got an opportunity to understudy it at the taper. Oh. And yeah, it was really exciting. That's my family, literally. And what you did in terms of bringing these people to life 
the life of factory workers, bringing to life that these people had amazing lives before the economy turned upside down. And what that did to people and their relationships was amazing. And I hope that it continues to run around many, 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 many more places. And it lives a very long time because there are still people who are suffering from that now. So to get started, I would like to ask you this question. I have read that you said your inspirations are Bretok Brett, Toni Morrison, and Richard Pryor. Are those still oh, your yes, inspirations? gosh, very much so amongst many others. But I think those are three very foundational artists in my life. Certainly Toni Morrison arrived in my childhood, the moment when I most needed words from an inspirational, creative, poetic writer. I think Bertolt Brecht was someone who I encountered when I was in graduate school. I was exploring sort of the tension between wanting to be an artist and wanting to be an activist and trying to figure out a way to marry both of those things. And in Bertolt Brecht's writing, I found that kind of urgency and necessity that I hold on to to this day. And Richard Pryor, I still love his irreverence and his fire and his fearlessness and the way in which he used humor really to go deeply into sort of the pathos of our culture. And I think that there are enormous lessons in the way in which he approached his craft and his writing. And so I do think that those three people are part of my creative DNA. Speaking of school, I was doing my digging around on you this past week into your life, and you didn't really set out to be a playwright. You went to school for something else. Am I correct? Yes, And no, you think about this COVID moment, and I've had so much time to think and reflect and explore sort of what is the truth of my life. And in many ways, I do think even when I took deviations that I did set out to go to school to be a writer. I think that everything that I experienced and encountered and, you know, the classes that I succeeded in, the classes that I failed, all became sort of foundational in my practice. But I did as a youngster when I was in high school, I went to the high school of music and art as a musician. And so I think that I always on some level was interested in the performing arts As a career, you know, what I discovered while I was at music and art is that I wasn't quite good enough a musician to take that full journey, which was fine. And it's probably even a blessing because Lord knows where I'd be if I did take that journey. But (laughs) while I was there, I found theater and I carried my love for theater through college, even though I took like a deviation through pre-med for like two years. I still think I held on to... I still held on to theater as like a passion and a place that I went to to explore and escape. So pre-med, pre-med is is what I was was getting at, right? I didn't choose to be pre-med in many ways. The university chose me to be a pre-med student just because of the way in which I tested and the kind of aptitudes that I had. And I thought, why not? I mean, when we're all young, we don't know what we're going to do. And I thought, great, you know, I'll make my parents happy. (laughs) I'll become a doctor. And it never was my passion. And midway through the university studies, I really had to come to grips with the fact that I was doing something that I had been kind of shoehorned in, which didn't naturally align with my own desires and my own impulses. Interesting. So what's the curve? Was there an exact moment? Okay, so you were pre-med, you were there, and then was there a moment where you were like, okay, well, no. There were many, many moments in which... (laughs) 
I realized that it wasn't going to work. I mean, one of them was chemistry and I failed a chemistry test. And not only did I fail the chemistry test, I failed it in an epic way. And when our professor had sort of put the bell curve on where students had scored, I looked at the person who like got 37. I'm like, oh my God, I can't imagine who that person would be. And I marched down to get my little booklet because back then we did our exams in like little booklets and it opened it up and there was like the bright red grade. And I was like, oh, and I had to muster all my courage and walk back up those steps to the class. And, and that's really the moment which I realized that I was a dramatist is that I had to, you know, weave a different truth in order to keep my ego going. You're talking about school. I heard you say in an interview that you felt as though you were oftentimes underestimated. And can you speak to that? Because I'm sure there's a lot of young artists that are listening. And Sure. I mean, going back to high school, I remember a very specific incident. I've always been someone who's been drawn to creative writing. And I always prided myself on the fact that I felt that I was a fairly good creative writer. And I think it was a senior seminar in high school, which demanded that we do a lot of creative writing. And there were some pieces that we did which were graded and there were others in which the teacher said, I don't want to know who wrote it. I just want to read the work and grade it without knowing the writer. And it was really interesting that all of the pieces of writing that I did that had my name, Lynn Nottage, this black girl from Brooklyn, I got C's on. And all of the anonymous papers I got A's or A pluses, and it told me instantly all the information that I needed to know is that I was going to face an uphill battle, that the way I looked, the way I spoke, and because of my gender, that I was constantly going to be underestimated in many ways. But I think in some respects, because I encountered that early on, and I understood it, it really armed me with the tools in order to fight it through to today. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to a young person so that they could learn to have that same sort of fortitude to keep going forward towards what it is that they're really drawn to, no matter what is there. You know, I think think that what's fundamental is understanding one's truth and leaning into it and holding it and protecting it at all costs. Mm. Because I think there are always going to be people who are going to poke holes and challenge and undermine and underestimate. And it's really about holding on to with both hands as tightly as you can and protecting it. That would be my advice. The stories that you write when you deal with the human experience in the way that you do, I'm wondering what inspires you? You traveled to the Congo to write Ruined. You went to Reading to talk to all these people for sweat. Like you really do your work. What becomes the impulse prior to you making that decision to go and explore that world? When I'm trying to find a story or a narrative, I'm pulled in many different directions. A story that I can't shake or, you know, in the case of Ruined, which is about a group of women in the Democratic Republic of Congo who find themselves sort of trapped in a brothel, which is both their savior but also their exploiter. They're able to survive and make a living, but at the same time, they find that their bodies are being violated in ways that they find intolerable. And that story for me really came out of wanting to understand how women in the Democratic Republic of Congo who are living through a protracted war, you know, I think it's 5 million people died in the course of the war, I was just curious in how were women surviving and how were women negotiating a seemingly impossible space. And when I personally began 
looking for that information, I found that I couldn't find it without actually going there, that I had to do some of that primary research because there weren't enough people in that moment invested in those women's lives to want to know and understand what was happening to their bodies. And mm-hmm. I think that I carried that same impulse into my research for sweat. I became very interested around the time of Occupy Wall Street and the way in which economic stagnation was really beginning to shift our American narrative and found that there was a paucity of information and decided that in order to really understand that I had to go and do that research myself. And all that has really become sort of foundational to my practice as an artist is figuring out ways to tell stories that allow me to immerse in the storytelling. Yeah, I'm fascinated by the research that you do for the research you did for Ruined and Sweat And there's this tale that you actually chose writing Pennsylvania because you didn't drive. Yes. Now I do know how to drive. (laughs) At the time, I didn't know how to drive. I hired an assistant and I was shocked to discover that he also didn't know how to drive. And so we had to hire a third person to go with us, which became kind of wonderful because we had three different perspectives and three people that could explore the city. And so it really was a happy accident. When you're going in for your research, when is the moment between, okay, I've done enough research, now I'm going to put this away? Or is it always there and now I start writing? Do you have the idea before the research is done? I'm just a little more interested in the process of it. You know, it's kind of interesting. Like when I was working on my play Ruined, I went to East Africa with a very specific idea, which was to do a modern adaptation of Breck's Mother Courage, you know, Mm. set in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I went with Kate Worski, director, and my husband, Tony, and I had all these sets of questions that I wanted to ask. But when I began sitting down with refugee women, very specifically Congolese women who were fleeing that conflict. And I asked them about motherhood and personhood. Their responses didn't fit very conveniently into that Western construct, that they were telling me a story that was specifically African and the way in which they held on to their motherhood felt like it was born on the continent. And I thought, I can't tell that story that I came to this place to tell. I have to find the story that these women want me to tell. And that's how I came about telling Ruined, really looking at and sustaining the tension between women who can go through a seemingly impossible experience, be traumatized, yet at the same moment, be able to access their joy and access their resilience. And I thought that's something that I didn't necessarily find in Breck's story about a woman going through war. And with Reading, Pennsylvania, when I was doing research for sweat, I didn't even know that it was going to become sweat. We spent a year and a half trying to find that story, just really immersing myself and allowing the community to sort of push me through it in this very fluid way. (laughs) And it's only after I sat down with a group of steelworkers that the notion of what I wanted to tell began taking shape and taking form. And so I think that there actually is freedom when you're doing your research and not knowing. Yeah, and I find it fascinating, the research that you do and how much goes into it. Is there a way you approach the women in the Congo or the people in Reading 
what happens when somebody's shut off or are there different, we've talked to a lot of playwrights and storytellers about how they approach different people when talking to them about their projects. And I'm fascinated about your process Mm -hmm. of it. Everyone has really different techniques. I'm blessed to live with a documentary filmmaker who always enters his process with a great deal of empathy. And that's one of the things that he taught me is how to open my heart and also to reveal a little bit of myself to the folks that I'm talking to so that it can be a dialogue rather than me being that sponge that sort of absorbs everything, is that there is really an exchange of energy that allows us to get to our authentic selves. And I find that that is one of the most useful tools that I've had, but also being absolutely transparent about intent, both in East Africa and in Reading, I was clear about my intentions that I was there to listen, absorb. I wasn't necessarily going to use their tales in verbatim, but I was going to be inspired by what they said. And that I also was in the position to amplify the stories which people felt weren't being heard and weren't sort of reaching the ears of a larger audience. I'm curious, when you went to Africa to talk to the women, what kind of language do you use to get someone to open up in that kind of way? Because I remember when I went to Africa and I was in one of the villages, they didn't want their photograph to be taken because they felt as though you take something away from them when you do that. After talking for a bit, we were able to get past that. But what were some of the things that you were able to say to people to get them to realize your intention in your heart? It's interesting because I think that every village you enter is really different based upon the ways in which They have encountered folks from the outside and whether they feel in some way exploited. I had different experiences depending on where I was. I remember being all the way in the very, very north of Uganda, an area that had been plagued by the Lord's Resistance Army in which people were feeling very vulnerable and at first were incredibly reticent. And also Ugandan culture tends to be a quiet culture in which it takes some time for people to open up and share with you. And so what we found is that you had to sit a very long time with folks before they would begin to sort of peel away all of those layers of protective armor. But interestingly enough, once one or two people opened up, I found that suddenly I was overwhelmed with an entire village that wanted to tell their story to me. And I think there's a picture of me like sitting on this little stool with this long line of people who wanted to tell their stories to a storyteller. And at some point I, I said to him, it's, you know, it's an embarrassment of riches and right. there's not much I can do, but there's so many people who literally wanted to be seen. And that's what I realized. And it was true for a lot of the women, particularly the women from the DRC. My assumption was that they were going to be reticent and closed off and that I was going to have to really force them to tell their stories. But I found it was completely the opposite because there was so much urgency and necessity that they were really open in ways that I hadn't anticipated. And I also found, you know, when you bring food and beer, people are really (laughs) eager to sit down and break bread. I'm going to go back and forth between sweat and ruined a little bit and intimate apparel. But first of all, I, I loved 
the play. I first saw it at the public and then I saw it on Broadway and it lived with me for a very long time and I think it still does. And especially what was going on in the country. And you said at that time that our country really is losing our narrative, that we don't really have one. And that you perhaps, and correct me if I'm wrong, that when you went there to speak to the people that you really didn't think you would have much in common with them, that your narratives would be different, etc. But right. you found that actually was the opposite yeah I know that's yeah, two I mean, questions in one about I mean, it's two, our it's country two. not having a narrative right? yeah it's two I can answer both of those questions I mean and when I went to Reading Pennsylvania I found many intersections between my life and the folks that I spoke to I mean we as artists are in incredibly vulnerable positions and we know more about economic volatility and fluctuations than anyone. And I certainly know what it is one day to be incredibly successful and the next day really worrying about whether you're going to be able to pay the rent. And when I spoke to people about my truth, I found that folks were able to meet that. And in terms of narratives, what was fascinating about Reading, which is this incredibly rich, complicated, historic Cities. It's one of the first cities to have a socialist mayor, like proudly <laughs> in the 1930s and has this very strong union foundation because it was the center of textiles and the steel industry. And one would think that even now that they would be holding on to that in some ways that you would see when you're moving through the town. But what I found when I was speaking to people, inevitably, they always spoke of this city in past tense. They always said, Reading was instead of Reading is. And when I began wow. asking them about the future is that people weren't really able to come up with a satisfying narrative. And that's when, in fact, I realized that we as a nation, because I really do see Reading as a microcosm of America, it's when I realized that we were in trouble. I thought, oh, People are having a real difficulty yeah. trying to identify and project a narrative for the future. You could foresee kind of what was oh, going to yeah. happen in the country, that which I find really interesting. We kind of knew from talking to these people that they needed something to hang on to. Well, all of us need something yeah. to hold on. I mean, for ages, it was the Horatio Alger myth that if you work hard yeah. enough and you invest in... Your craft, you know, you'll succeed and you'll be rewarded. But what was happening is that you had individuals who had bought into that American myth and that narrative and who found themselves with nothing and just didn't understand. It's like, wait a minute, this is what the story is supposed to be. And then in the middle of the story, they discovered that they were in a completely different narrative and it right. confused them in many, many ways. And yes, it's like when I was talking to folks, I found that there was a great deal of anger. There was a lot of fracturing along economic and racial lines and that I could feel it bubbling up in ways that I found quite potentially frightening. And, you know, all these years later, it's come <laughs> to be, you know, there was an insurrection for God's sakes, yep. you know, led by that person. But yes, I mean, he sparked the fire, but by and large, it was led by angry white men who were trying to find their narrative. They don't know who they are in a country that is diverse. That's what I loved about Sweat so much is that the racial tension was there when things became financially yes. 
for everybody, right? And I felt as though I got to see the stories on both sides. And you did a beautiful job of showing the journey that we as America have to go through in understanding and having empathy for people. Do you think that if you had made this story about the Black family, would you have gotten a different response? Or if it was just about a white family that was in a factory, do you think it would have gotten a different response? Or do you think it's because it was this amalgamation showing this town that was affected and it didn't have anything to do with race? It had everything to do with the financial plight that everybody was in and the fear that everybody was feeling. Yes, of course, there would have been a very different outcome if I had chosen to segregate my stories. But the story that I wanted to tell was a story that was reflective of what I experienced. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to sustain that complexity and look at the intersectionality between race and class in a way that was truthful and honest. And so in order to tell that story, I had to put all of those people on the stage. And just in general, as an artist, I mean, I think about a lot of what I write is about the collisions between cultures. I like exploring that particular texture on the stage. And so I was less interested in telling this story or that story. I wanted to tell our story in all of its complications and darkness and explore that discomfort of having those characters collide. Yeah, and people who love each other, clearly. Yeah, clearly, but that's the difficulty in America. And that's the thing that we don't often speak about is that we can have relationships with people who we later discover hold beliefs that are the antithesis of what we believe. And trying to negotiate that space is really difficult, but it is the truth. So in what we're all living with right now, are you feeling inspired? Are there any stories that are coming through for you with all the unrest that we currently have? Or are you staying very quiet at this time? You know, it's so interesting because I have been really struggling over the last year trying to spark my creative juices. I've found myself to be in a period where I'm kind of creatively static. But that said, I've been spending a lot of my energy investing in how we can shift the theater ecosystem so that when we return from this COVID moment, that we return to a space that feels inviting to everyone in ways that it wasn't prior to this year of difficulty, you know, from COVID to Black Lives Matter to sort of living through an attempted (laughs) coup just spending a lot of time in reflection on where I want to go as an artist and also what kind of spaces I want to place my art. And it's been an interesting, I wouldn't say exercise, because I hope it's not an exercise. It needs to be manifested. I want to remind our audience to ask questions. And I do have a couple of questions here for you, Lynn. Number one is from Donnie. I'd love to hear Lynn speak about her moments of inspiration. What does it look like or feel like when you first decide to begin a project? I think one of the most delicious things in the creative experience is when you finally latch on to an idea that you feel you can live in for a long period of time. And every time you visit that idea, you get energized and excited. And so that's the feeling that I am always in hunt and in search for is that idea that's going to take me on an incredible journey and is going to allow me to live in that space and to grow in that space and to luxuriate in that space. One more from S. Rose. Thank you, Ms. Knowledge, for your generosity of spirit. My question, how have 
the events of the last year impacted you artistically? Sure. Just artistically, I think that by necessity, I've been, when I do write, I've been um, sort of leaning into writing little tiny pieces for the digital realm. I think because I'm so restless that I can't really sustain the energy to write things that are much longer. But I think that in writing short monologues that I've discovered a different kind of muscle. I really had the joy of writing a monologue for Theater of One, which is this wonderful project run by Christine Jones and Jenny Coons. And it's small pieces that are designed to be experienced by one audience member. And really during the pandemic, I endeavored to create something that felt intimate and replicated that exchange of energy that you experience when you're in the room together, but to be done at a distance. And the Theater for One allowed me to do that. But I have also been writing other little tiny pieces, which have been really great for keeping my creative juices flowing. What do you do for your a sense of peace and your spiritual renewal? How do you take care of yourself? I've been very, very intentional during this COVID moment because I think it's so easy, particularly everything that's happened, to go down a dark path and lose oneself. And so I spend a lot of time trying to take care of myself, both body and soul. I meditate and meditation and mindfulness have really helped ground me and provide a practice that's different from my creative practice, but feeds my creative practice because it stills my body in ways that allow me when I come out to be open in ways that I wouldn't be otherwise. And also I've been doing yoga and exercising. I'm out of the country right now. And one of the things in a place that is warm, thankfully, and that allows me to take long walks and to be in the ocean every single day. And one of the things that surprises me that I hadn't expected is that I love floating and breathing because when I float, I can hear my breath in ways that I can't, even when I'm in my meditation practice, I still can't hear my breath fully. But there's something about being in water, being completely weightless, and listening to your breath that I find incredibly restorative. I want to ask about a lot of your work. You tend to write about, I was reading something about how you write about a lot of people who are ignored. It's a big common thread within a lot of your work, people that I call kind of the others. And you write a lot about that. Can you talk a little bit about people that are ignored? And this thing I read about, maybe it wasn't you, about somebody knocking into you in the street and just people being pushed aside. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember when I was talking about that, but I do think specifically as a sort of a middle-aged black woman, there's something that happens where you become seen less and less. You know, you can walk up to a bar that's crowded and you can spend a half an hour trying to get a drink before anyone will see you. And it's immensely frustrating. I had an experience of, and I think this may be the story that you're alluding to, I was with my children And I was in a line at the airport and this white man stepped in front of me and I'm like, excuse me, I'm in line. And he literally turned around and said, oh, I didn't see you. I was like, how could you? I'm like, I'm right here in line. But that just speaks to 
the way in which many of us are made invisible by this culture. And as a result, I think that I'm drawn to stories of people who've been marginalized by circumstance, and then I'm invested in amplifying their stories. It's like, it's about time that I don't have to fight for space and I don't have to fight to be seen. And that's the reason I put our story center stage is because they belong center stage. And I don't want anyone else to be bumped and ignored in the ways that I've had to throughout my life. And told, I didn't see you standing there. Right? I didn't see you standing right. I, I mean, I was like the right. audacity. It's like, I, you didn't see, it's like, how can you not see me? I'm not small. taking up space. And so I know that you started an initiative for artists, young playwriting artists, and wanting to put up uh, statues of Lorraine Hansberry as well. Can you talk about that a bit? Because that whole idea of taking up space is, I think, a huge thing for artists of color. I was the only one in my class, in my program in graduate school, and you were only the second one to come through yours. So as a Black woman, I want to see other people take up space. Can you talk about that initiative and what that looks like? Sure. I mean, I think that you hit upon that word, the space and occupying space. And as a result, we've been thinking a lot about monuments and how we memorialize people, and how we celebrate people. And I'm working with the Lily Awards and Julia Jordan to create a statue of Lorraine Hansberry that would tour the country because we think it's really important for people not only to see a statue of a black woman, but to see a statue of an artist. All of these monuments, initiatives, and statues are coming down, and statues are being erected. There are only five statues in New York City of women, and Of those five statues, one of them is a fictional character. It's Alice in Wonderland, and it really speaks to where we place value in our culture. And so I think it's really important for us to seize this moment to reassert who we value and how we value. And so we're building a figurative statue of Lorraine Hansberry, which is being created by the brilliant artist Alison Saar. And it's going to be Lorraine sitting on a tree stump, surrounded by five chairs that are symbolizing her artistry and her activism. And we're really looking to shift the paradigm of what a memorial is, because normally monuments are placed on a pedestal, you look up at them and you feel very distant. But in this particular monument, we really want to invite people to sit next to Lorraine Hansberry. We want it to be interactive. We imagine that it's a statue that people could create art on, that classes can sit and write poetry on it. And one of the things that's on the statue is a quote that she made famous, which is never be afraid to sit a while and think. And so we also want it to be a statue where people can come to reflect. But also part of this initiative is creating a scholarship fund for women of color going to graduate school. And more specifically, our storytellers, so playwrights and screenwriters and television writers, women and non-binary writers to go to graduate school because it really is like the gateway to a professional career. Like you look at all of the people who've managed to be successful, a lot of them are because they had that three years in which they could sit and write and hone their craft and really find their voice. And that is such a gift. And just anecdotally, it's like I've had black women in my classes who have had to work three jobs and come to class tired 
because in order to afford to be there, they have to work nonstop. And, you know, their classmates come in fresh and with lots of pages. And I want to shift that and figure out how can we be supportive of our next generation of vital storytellers and allow them that space to really grow and nurture their voices. And so part of the Lorraine Hansberry initiative is this monument in which we allow Lorraine to take up some space. And the other half is building off of her legacy and making room for the next generation of storytellers. Is there some place where we can donate or? Yes, there is. We'll put it up on the screen and then we'll also put it up on our website as well. It's the lilies.org. And if you go there, under initiatives is the Lorraine Hansberry statue and folks can make donations directly there. And I encourage everyone who is really invested in like the next generation of storytellers to go and donate. Anything is welcome. And also to share the link, you know, we haven't really gotten quite to our big amplification stage and we're beginning to let people know. But the more folks who are out there talking about it, the quicker we can get to our goal. Well, we just put it up on the screen and, and we'll share it onto our, our, onto our website. You know, I'm so interested in how that. the, of course, um, how this Michael Jackson musical came to you. I know you sure. were working on it. I've working on it for about eight years. I was approached oh, by... Wow. Yeah, well, it takes eight years to win the trust of this estate, but I was approached by producer Leah Volek, who for a long time had been executive of Sony, which controls the Michael Jackson catalog and portfolio. And she came to me and said, we're interested in figuring out, can we make this into a musical? And I personally grew up on Michael Jackson's music, my life tracks with him. My first album was ABC. When I got to college, my most important album was Off the Wall. And, you know, we used to have thriller parties in lieu of going and drinking. We'd spend the evening just dancing to Thriller. And so I really leaped at the opportunity to tell the story of someone who I admired, but also someone who had a very complicated, fraught journey and really sustained the complexity of who he was. And I'm someone that sort of doesn't back away from challenges. And that's how it came about. And then I began working with director Christopher Wielden, who's also a choreographer, because in order to tell the story of Michael Jackson, you also have to tell the story of dance. And so we're looking very much to center it around his artistry, around how he built those songs and how he came to find the movement that has come to define him. And Christopher's so talented. What an incredible choreographer and director. I really like his work. I have a comment from the audience, coming from Ava. Reading was like my Rust Belt small hometown near Buffalo, and the play really spoke to me. I know those people so well. I love that people are connecting with it and know and are talking about sweat this way. I feel immensely gratified, and thank you for saying that, Ava. We had the privilege of taking sweat through the public theater mobile tour. It was curated by Stephanie Ibarra and Chiara Klein, and we had the opportunity to go to 18 small cities and communities and five states in the Rust Belt. And we were quite overwhelmed and surprised by the immensity of the response and how people really use it as an opportunity to open up dialogues within their own communities and also just how willing people were to engage with the storytelling and find themselves within different characters. 
were you nervous about bringing it over to Reading for them to kind of see a mirror of yeah. what was going on? Did it terrify you? Did oh, it terrify yeah. the artists involved? Yeah, I mean, when I was first developing Sweat, built into the way in which we want to do audience engagement was the desire to take the play back to Reading, Pennsylvania after we had premiered it in Oregon. It didn't happen after Oregon, but it did after we did the show in public. I was, of course, petrified. I thought, who am I to tell their story? And I think I've never been more nervous <laughs> sitting in the audience than I was when I was watching the folks in Reading watch Sweat. But by the end, actually, by intermission, a lot of my anxiety began to dissipate because I could see that people were really leaning in to the storytelling and were listening much more acutely than they did certainly in New York City, where you always feel like you have to fight for the audience's intention in ways that can be immensely frustrating. But there, I mean, it's remarkable. Even when we did like the Sweat Mobile Tour, these are folks who don't necessarily have the same theater muscles as people in New York, but you never hear cell phones ring. There are women who came with their babies who sat through the entire play and gave the play sort of respect in ways that sometimes I just don't feel in New York by people who sometimes feel like, bring it to me, show me what you got, rather than being curious about the storytelling and investing. And that's one of the things that I loved about bringing it to Reading, Pennsylvania, because I thought we're going to be able to have a dialogue. After the show in Reading, Pennsylvania, it really was like a tent revival in which people got up and testified and told their stories with like truthfulness and authenticity. And that's what it elicited is that people saw a story and then they wanted to tell their own stories, which I thought was fantastic. How did that go? Was it like a talk back after there was the a show? Talk back. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah, there was a talk back afterwards, you know, we sat there and, you know, the actors were kind of nervous and yeah, shaking. How do you think how much theater has a role in affecting change? I always like to think that theater is at the vanguard of change. But, you know, my frustration over the years is that we're not able to reach as diverse audiences as I feel are necessary to have real systemic change. But I do think that there's something magnificent about the way in which we as storytellers can build empathy and create a communal energy that then can be taken out and sort of released into the world. And I don't think that there's any other medium that has that capacity perhaps with the exception of live music and dance, but that all sort of falls under the umbrella of the performing arts. And so in that respect, I think that theater has this capacity in that moment when there's something truly magnificent to sort of rearrange the DNA of people so that when they leave, they're slightly changed and slightly different. And in that respect, I do think it has the potential to be quite impactful. What was your reaction, your feeling, the first and the second time winning the Pulitzer? Well, the first time it was a complete and total shock because I'd written a play about black women in Africa. And, you know, the Pulitzer is supposed to be about an American story. So I did not anticipate that. And so it literally took my breath away. The second time, I think I was equally shocked because I thought, oh, it's not going to happen again. I can just put my feet up today and let other people sweat it because I'm certainly <laughs> you know, done sweating. <laughs> and so when I got that phone call, it just, once again, it was like, oh, my God. This did is you, did you celebrate or did you? Uh, 
I did. You know, the first time I really celebrated and I brought my friends and my family together. We had a party and because it felt truly monumental. It felt like the apotheosis of a lot of hard work and a lot of time, you know, sweating and working and trying to fortify my ego in order to do this. And so I felt like I really needed the release when that happened. And I think after sweat, I spent more quiet time sort of reflecting on what it meant on a larger way. And not just for me, but for the community and really taking that responsibility of being sort of the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright to amplify the voices of others and to hold the hands with people who were coming up behind me. What are your thoughts and your feelings when you saw Amanda Gorman? Oh, I mean, she was kind of astonishing. Mm -hmm. I just still can't get over how self-possessed and poised and wise that young woman was standing in front of an audience of powerful people and being sort of amplified further to millions of people. It just really made my heart sing. And I was immensely proud of her. I ask that because I really do see it as she stands on your shoulders, that you have created a platform for people to know what is possible. And I just want to say thank you for really, really doing the work. Thank you. It's like every day is an act of resurrection. (laughs) (laughs) And I appreciate that. And I know that I stand on the shoulders of many giants who I've known and even more who I have not known and wish I had known. I don't know that this is true of all playwrights, but I take seriously the responsibility of nurturing the next generation. I think part of it's because of I'm a mother, part of it's because I've invested a good part of my career to be an educator and in recognizing so that the value of the stories of like a diverse group of people. Speaking of which, do you think there is something the theater community is starting to talk about more, and but how it can be elevated and talked about a little bit better? Meaning, if you're talking about diversity, standing on the shoulders of other people, and my question is, do you think there's something the theater community is starting to talk about more, but how it can be talked about even better? This summer was a cultural reckoning, and not just in theater, but throughout the country, we really had to confront the anti-blackness that's permeating all aspects of our culture, and by extension, institutions that most of us work within at a theater and it's ironic because theater does really think of itself as being this liberal bastion of diversity and inclusion and I think because of the nature of what we do sometimes we can be incredibly myopic and not necessarily recognize the extent to which racism has infiltrated all aspects of our theater ecosystem you know from the university level you know to the casting directors to Broadway and I think it's really important right now that we all do some interrogation of our practices and I don't mean just the theaters but also us as practitioners and think about how we as individuals can do something to help dismantle racism, you know, and it can be with little gestures and it can be huge gestures, but now is the moment because none of us want to return to a theater that looked like it did before because I think that it won't necessarily support the expansiveness of the ways in which we want to tell our stories. I know that I have a kind of restlessness that will not be able to be contained by the prosceniums that have been built by those institutions. 
that perfectly answered. I, I don't think we can return to that. I just don't think anyone's going to stand for it. So, Joy, do you have one quick question as we unfortunately have to start wrapping up? I'm so sad this hour went by so quickly. I know, right? How would you like to be defined? You know, I think that that's a complicated question because I always push back at definitions because I think that definitions never fully embrace the totality of who we are. And I think that on any given moment, we sort of lean into different kinds of hyphenates. And I also find that so often that this culture uses labels to diminish us rather than to empower us. And so I think that I am still looking for ways to define myself that reflect the expansiveness of who I am. You know, Langston Hughes in his famous America poem is that he's still looking for the America of his imagination and the America of the promise. And I think that in some ways, just as an artist and a human being, I'm still looking for ways in which to define myself that fully embrace who I am. Well, from the outside, perfect answer. I think Joy and I both define you as a magnificent artist and we're both so privileged and honored that you spent this hour with us. I'd really like to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. And that's our show, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to thank tonight's wonderful guest, Lynn Nottage, and thanks to Joy for sharing my hosting duties with me tonight. Next Monday, John Andrew Morrison and I kick off Women's History Month with Moulin Rouge's Robin Herter. And for all the fans who wanted to know when we would be talking to Philippa Sue, that interview will happen on March 29th. We really hope you enjoyed our show. If you did, please like our video, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter for news about upcoming guests. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Theater. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer, yours truly, associate producer, Jeffrey Schubart. Press is provided by Sin Gogolak, GoGo Public Relations, and our social media is managed by Mia Radia. Special thanks to Nancy Hurwitz, Alana Canty-Samuel, and Maura Levines. Live at the Lortel is recorded online by Bryant Falk, Abacus Entertainment. While theaters are closed, we hope you will consider donating to the COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund at actorsfund.org or your favorite theater company. Thank you so much for listening.